Would you turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1, verse 14. What's your favorite Christmas story? I'm not looking for volunteers. Not that I thought I'd get any anyway. I'm sure that you have one. Maybe some of you have a hundred and one. One of my favorite Christmas stories happened when I was about seven or eight. My sister Greta and I had gone to bed. I was already asleep, but something woke me up. It was a man's voice up in the living room of our house. And my first thought was, it's Santa. And I mean, I was buzzing with excitement. Not excited enough to get up, though, for fear of, a little bit of fear there. He was typing on a typewriter and saying out loud what he typed. So, I heard something like this. Dear Greta, I hope you enjoy your typewriter. Love, Santa. And in all of my excitement, I realized I've heard his voice before. I thought all week about the best way to word that story. It was an exciting night for me, but it was an enlightening night for me as well. Our theme for this month is the story of Jesus from John chapter 1. We're looking at three parts of his story. The first part is the word. The second part is the witness to the Word. And the third part is the work of the Word. This morning we're continuing to examine the third part of the story of Jesus. The work of the Word. The Word here being the subject of this chapter from the opening verse of the book. In verse 1 it says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word here, as we've already seen, is the self-expression and revelation of God. God's primary communication to us. The Word is Jesus. And we've already seen three aspects of the work of the Word, the work of Jesus, if you will. We have already seen that the work of the Word was to be in the world. We took that from verse 10 last Sunday morning. He was in the world, and the world was created through Him, yet the world did not recognize Him. We have also seen that the work of the Word was to come to the world. Verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And then we've seen that the work of the Word was to make those who believe children of God. And that's from verses 12 and 13. But to all 
who did receive Him, He gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. Today we're going to focus on the fourth aspect of the work of the Word. This part of the story of Jesus is the story of Christmas. Here's a reminder for all of us this week. The story of Christmas is the story of Jesus. Any other story are just fakes, phonies. The story of Jesus is the story of Christmas. Let's read about it here in this first part of the 14th verse of John chapter 1. It says, The Word became flesh and took up residence among us. The Word became flesh and took up residence among us. Again, the third part of the story of Jesus is the work of the Word. And that's the subject for verses 10 all the way down through verse 18. But today we're focusing on this first part of verse 14 from which we find the fourth aspect of the work of the Word. It was to become human and live with us. The work of the Word was to become human and live with us. That's what is meant, as we've already read, the Word became flesh and took up residence among us. It means that the eternal, heavenly, holy, divine, personal, creating, life source and light-giving communication and revelation of God became human. All of the things that were said about the Word in verses 1 through 5 have now become human. The Word has. O come, let us adore Him, says, Word of the Father, now in flesh. Appearing. It means that the second person in the Trinity took on flesh, a body, and skin, and muscles, and blood, and bones took on human nature. Typically in the Bible, the word flesh has a negative connotation to it, so it means that the word in taking on humanity became subject to all of the needs of humans. All of the experiences of humans, even the bad ones, all of the limitations of humans that before this as God He had never known, that He became subject to all of the temptations of humanity as well. It means that the timeless one was born. Let that soak in for a moment. The timeless one. The eternal one. The one who 
had no beginning and will have no end, in a sense, had a beginning as a human. It means that deity became humanity. Hark the herald angels sing, says, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. The one from heaven had come to earth. It means that God came to live with us. He came to live like us. He came to live among us. He came to live as one of us. The Word, it says, took up residence among us. That means literally that He tabernacled among us. He pitched His tent among us as the Word became human. In the same way that God and His glory had dwelt among Israel in the tabernacle and the temple and the tent of meeting and the glory cloud, the Shekinah, God and His glory were now in the world dwelling among people in His Word who was born as a human. This is the miracle of the incarnation of God becoming flesh. This, specifically John 1.14, the first part of it, is John's nativity. A couple of years ago during the Christmas season, I preached from John chapter 1 one Sunday, and I called it the neglected nativity. And it is. As you compare it to Matthew's nativity and Luke's nativity, John has a nativity as well. This is John's account of the birth of Jesus. And it's his explanation for the birth of Jesus. It's his theological explanation for the birth of Christ. And you could sum it up in this way. The Word became human. And lived with us. I just alluded to the fact that there are other accounts of the birth of Jesus. Other nativity stories in the Bible. Let's take a moment and read them together. Flip back to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 verse 18. says here, a little bit different than John, but the same story. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Because what has been conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. 
And you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, the prophet Isaiah. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us, or God is with us. When Joseph got up from sleeping, he did as the the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but he did not know her intimately until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. Flip over to Luke chapter 1 and look at verse 26. Let's be reminded of parts of Luke's account of the birth of Jesus. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. This is one of those places in the Bible that if you use your Bible, your Bible ought to be sort of worn out to this place. Easy to find, at least Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 1, verse 26 says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Rejoice, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. And then the angel told her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, How can this be, since I have not been intimate with a man? The angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And skip down a few verses to verse 39. It says, In those days Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah where she entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. Elizabeth was her cousin. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby, Elizabeth was pregnant as well, the baby leaped inside her. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she exclaimed with a loud cry, You are the most blessed of women, and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby, that is the baby inside her, John the Baptist, Leap for joy inside me. She who has believed is blessed because what was spoken to her by the Lord will be fulfilled. Look at verse 67. 
Same chapter, it says, Then John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. Look at verse 78 and 79. It says, because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. And then you get down into chapter 2, verse 6. And it says, while they were there, while Joseph and Mary were in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. And then she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him snugly in cloth and laid him in a feeding trough because there was no room for them at the lodging place. In that same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. For look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today a Savior, who is Messiah the Lord, was born for you in the city of David. And we started this morning with John the Apostle, his account in the gospel that bears his name. He wrote other books in the New Testament I want us to go to the last of those now for another account that he records for us in the book of Revelation, chapter 12. If John chapter 1 is the neglected nativity, then Revelation chapter 12 is for the most part the unknown nativity. Most people don't even know it's here. Or some might say the different nativity because i've been to a lot of nativity story productions i have never seen a woman with stars around her head moon i have never seen a fiery red dragon with multiple heads as one of the characters maybe you've been to a live nativity this week any of you seen a live dragon in one of those productions i guess not In Revelation chapter 12, verse 1 through 5, though, we read an account of the birth of Christ. Just a little bit different. It says, A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. And this, I would suggest to you, doesn't represent Mary, but instead the nation of Israel. And that's clear by the The symbolism, the sun, the moon, the twelve stars, the twelve tribes. Similar vision to what Joseph had in the book of Genesis. Verse 2 says, this woman, Israel, who in addition to Mary would give birth to, to the Messiah. She was pregnant and she cried out in labor and agony as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. There was a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were 
seven diadems or seven crowns. And this represents Satan, who with all of his might sought to keep the promised Messiah from ever being born. And after his birth, would still not give up and sought to have him killed. Verse 4 says, His tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she did give birth, he might devour her child. Do you remember any story connected with the Christmas story of an attempt being made to kill the newborn king? Sure we do. Herod was jealous. So jealous that he had all of the baby boys under a certain age killed in that whole region of the world. Verse 5 says, But she gave birth to a son, a male, who is going to shepherd all nations with an iron scepter. And her child was caught up to God and to His throne. So there you have, in less than one verse, the birth of Christ all the way to the ascension of Christ, back to His Father, back to His glory. One more account. Uh, This one doesn't get much attention as well, uh, because it's not at first obvious that this is what it is, but it is. It's Paul's account of the birth of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. It says, make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus. I want you to notice how the verses we're about to read sound very much like what we've already read in John chapter 1. Who existing in the form of God, that is, eternally, had existed as God, the second person of the Trinity. The Word, John 1. Who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage, something to be held on to and kept for himself. Instead, he emptied himself of this. Now, he did not cease to become God, but a lot of the privileges of being God, he laid aside for a while when he came to earth. Instead, he emptied himself by becoming or by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. Here's some of what's so magnificent about the birth of Jesus. That he would condescend to our level. You hear what it's being described as? Deity taking on the form of a slave. Humbling himself even to the point to take on the likeness of mere men. People that he had created. And when he had come as a man in his external form. That's his birth, his life. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even to death on a cross. I want you to go back to John's account in John chapter 1 verse 14 and let's look at it one more time, hear it one more time. It says, the Word became flesh and took up residence among us. We've read now 
all of these various New Testament biblical accounts of the birth of Christ, the question becomes, and we're going to use language that we've seen in John chapter 1, the question becomes, why did the Word become human and live with us? What's the significance of it? Why did Jesus, why did the Word, the eternal Word, have to be born? Why did He have to come here? Well, there are a lot of reasons. Lots of reasons. But I'll give you just a few very quickly. First, the Word became human and came to live with us to fulfill prophecy. Did you know that there are hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming of the Messiah, about the birth of Jesus? And He came and was born to fulfill all of those prophecies. You see, God will always do what He says. He will always vindicate His Word. One of the things that we each year can take from the story of Christmas is that God is faithful to His Word. So when it comes to things that God has spoken about the future, even for us, we can be confident that they will be fulfilled. A second reason that the Word became human and came to live with us was to represent us. To represent His people. In His coming, Jesus was a second Adam. Does that make sense? In the same way that Adam had represented all people who would come from Him when He chose poorly and sinned in the garden and caused not just His fall, but our fall as well, we then needed another Adam. To come and represent the people that would come from Him. And that's what Jesus did. He came and represented the people who would belong to Him. Who would come from Him. And where the first Adam had failed, Jesus, the second Adam, succeeded. Where the first Adam failed and made all of us failures, the second Adam succeeded. He aced the test. And He did it for everyone who would trust on Him for salvation. And look, it's not just that the first Adam failed. We also need Jesus to represent us because we do a very poor job of representing ourselves, don't we? We're failures too. We need a representative. Take that from the story of Christmas. A third reason that the Word became human and came to live with us was to die on the cross for sinners. That's what it said in Philippians chapter 2. We read just a moment ago. It immediately transitioned from the coming of Christ to the cross of Christ. And it is a reminder to us, and I want everybody to get this, that Christmas is not just about the coming of Jesus. Christmas is primarily about what He came to do. Think back to the words of the angel Gabriel. The words of the angels to the shepherds. 
the words of Elizabeth, the words of Mary, the words of Zechariah, and Simeon, and Anna. All of their words pointed either to what this baby was coming to do, or what this baby had come to do. Fourth reason that the Word became human and came to live with us was to save us. To forgive us our sins. To give us eternal life. To make us right with God. To do this for His people. Those who had looked forward to His coming in faith and those who would look back to His coming in faith. And He would do this through His death and His resurrection. And then a fifth reason that the Word became human and came to live with us was to reveal God. And we'll go much more in depth on that next week. You see, He had to be human and live with us to do all of this. I've already told you that the story of Christmas is about the miracle of the incarnation, but I want you to get this as well. It's not just about the miracle of the incarnation. The story of Christmas is about the necessity of the incarnation. The story of Jesus includes the work of the Word. And part of the work of the Word was to become human and live with us. This is the story of Christmas. You see, the story of Christmas is the story of Jesus. And the story of Jesus continues with what He was born to do. Talked about that just a moment ago. He came to die on a cross to save His people from their sins. One of the primary ways we remember this and we communicate this is through the Lord's Supper. And that's what we come to now. When I speak of the Lord's Supper, I want you to understand that it's His Supper. That means that it's all about Him. It's all about what our Lord Jesus has done in His coming. The bread that we take represents His body, His life given for us. The juice that we drink represents His blood that was shed to cover and wash away our sins and as a payment for them. His supper means that it's about what He's come for, but it's also a reminder that He's coming again, right? As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of Me. Until I come, do this in remembrance of Me. When we call it the Lord's Supper, We're not only reminded that it's His Supper, but we're also reminded that it's for His people. It's for those who believe. Those who are trusting on Him for salvation. And for those who have signified their faith in Christ through baptism. And those who continue to signify or give evidence to their faith in Him through a life that's characterized by obedience to Him. Not perfection, but obedience to Him. Being for us His people, the Lord's Supper is about our fellowship with Him. And because of our fellowship with Him, our fellowship with each other. And according to Scripture, before taking it, it requires examination. 